You're listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara-Burn. Tonight, we head to Turkey on the one-year anniversary of a catastrophic 7.8 magnitude earthquake that killed 59,000 people in that country and in neighboring Syria. We speak with the country's head of delegation of the International Federation of Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies to find out about the efforts and challenges when it comes to both the recovery and rebuilding. What do you call a water valve on an indoor sink or bathtub? Is it a tap or a faucet? What about an upholstered piece of furniture with room for three people in a row? Do you call that a sofa, a Chesterfield, or a couch? Is it schedule or schedule? Leisure or leisure? Those are all questions included on the new survey of Canadian English being done by McGill University. It builds on a 1972 study and it will look to see how much Canadian English is evolving, how it differs by region, and what unique terms we use here. But first, King Charles was seen in public today for the first time since his cancer diagnosis was made public on Monday as his youngest son, Prince Harry, flew in from L.A. just to see him. We look into how the monarchy has become more transparent on health issues and what it means for the functioning of the monarchy to have the king with this kind of diagnosis. And we look at the often difficult and delicate task of sharing news of a cancer diagnosis with those closest to you. We're going to begin tonight in London. You know it's a place, if you listen to the show, you know that I spent many years working as a correspondent in London. And of course, we spent an awful lot of time uh, monitoring the health of the royal family, specifically, of course, the late queen and her late husband, Prince Philip. But um, of course, yesterday came news that King Charles had been diagnosed with cancer. He was pictured for the first time today since that diagnosis was made public yesterday. The 75-year-old was seen alongside Queen Camilla as they left the capital to head to the royal estate in Sandringham. Uh, that's in Norfolk. You may remember the images of the late Queen at Christmas. That's where they were taken as well. Uh, Buckingham Palace announced that the King had been diagnosed with a form of cancer and would step back from public duties for treatment, at least temporarily. Now, few details about the diagnosis have been revealed, other than to confirm that it was indeed discovered during a recent procedure to treat an enlarged prostate. But it is not, they say, prostate cancer. It was also revealed that the king had begun outpatient treatment. Both his sons were informed about his diagnosis before the announcement, and Prince Harry, the Duke of Sussex, arrived in London this morning on an overnight flight from L.A., to visit with his father, speculating or really are leading to speculation, of course, about the seriousness of his father's condition. Again, the king is not stepping back from his duties as monarch and head of state. Buckingham Palace stated that his majesty will continue to undertake state business and official paperwork as usual. He will only postpone his public facing duties. Here's royal commentator Alistair Bruce in London. The role of the king is to be a constant part of the government's apparatus. He is a functionary within that process. And he can do that even though he's not feeling his best. The fact that other members of the royal family go out and do engagements is the forward-facing element of the monarchy. The monarchy can adapt to pretty much anything. And that's exactly what they're going to do. Well, this comes, of course, less than 18 months after Charles ascended the throne following the death of his mother, the Queen, uh, in September of 2022, and six months to the day uh, since his coronation. Joining me now is Patricia Treble. She's a royal commentator and author of the Right Royalty newsletter on Substack, something I highly recommend if you're interested in this stuff. Uh, Patricia, thanks so much. Welcome back. Oh, my pleasure, Ben. This, we, we, I guess at this point, just your reaction to this news, because I think for a long time, as, as you know, I spent quite a bit of time covering the royal family, we were kind of left guessing about what was going on behind the scenes. We would know that there'd be hospital visits and so on, but we didn't yep. really know what they were about. That's changed, changed quite, quite significantly in the past month. 
Yeah, it really has. I mean, it's been interesting how open the king has been, you know, with his medical condition. I mean, first, obviously, talking about the fact he was going to have a treatment for an enlarged prostate, which, of course, is something that happens to a lot of guys his age. He's 75, but a lot of guys don't like talking about it. And so, you know, huge amount of attention and a lot of people looking up the, you know, going to websites and looking up symptoms and stuff like that. So a really positive public health message. And then the news about cancer. And yes, he hasn't said what type of cancer it is. We know it's not prostate cancer. This is something they found when they were doing the procedure. But the fact that he's even talking about the fact that he has cancer, that is a huge change. I mean, the late queen and Prince Philip were famous for simply never talking about their health. They would go into hospital, come out, and you'd never know what happened. I mean, to this day, we do not know which hip Prince Philip had replaced. Yeah, I remember yeah. being very secretive when I was there, <laughs> indeed. Yeah. It's true, though, in terms of the transparency, and I think the palace has been fairly fairly clear about this, uh, the king felt that transparency only went so far, that they didn't want to talk about what type of cancer this is. So that, of course, no. has led to, a, a, you know, the usual amount of speculation. Exactly. And I and I think this also goes back, you know, when we're talking about Kate, the Princess of Wales. I mean, she made it clear when they announced that she had abdominal surgery that she wanted her personal medical information to remain private. And I'm going to be honest. I understand, uh, you know, as much as you kind of want to know what's going on, they aren't the typical politicians who are in the public eye for like 10 years. These people are in the public eye forever, for life. And if you're going to put up, you know, one wall, this is what it's going to be over medical information. And it's up to you to decide what to release and what not to release. And so, I mean, we know he's going to outpatient treatment. I, I think what they'll do is is what they what they announced with Kate is that if anything changes, they will announce it. Otherwise, you just consider it, you know, we're going on as normal, which means we won't see him on public facing events. So he'll keep doing, you know, his famous the red boxes, the famous paperwork that always comes in from, you know, all the realm countries, the Commonwealth, all his charities and military affiliations and everything like that. He has to do all the affairs of state, meeting the prime minister. But all the public-facing stuff is cancelled. There's precedents. The pandemic. Remember the Queen went into a bubble at Windsor Castle? You've got Zoom. You've got all this technology now. They've got secure phone lines. And so he'll just continue on as normal. I, I don't think anyone would have failed to notice that Prince Harry, the Duke of Sussex, uh, quickly went to London yep. uh, today to see his dad. And that would have fueled some speculation about the seriousness of, uh, of it or not. Or perhaps just it was a moment where they could maybe have a little bit of a reconciliation. But but clearly this is something, and I think this is true of any family and any cancer diagnosis, it's a cause for concern. And I think Harry's visit today was uh, was indicative of that. Yeah, I do think so. And I and I think, look, there is so much ill will, so much angst between in that family. I mean, this sort of a visit, you know, half an hour is, isn't going to do, I think, a lot. But look, when you've got illness, in a family, it has, as I've said to everyone, it has a way of clarifying what is important. And I think it was it was a lovely gesture of his. But traveling like eight time zones uh, for a half an hour meeting, I don't know how good that was. I mean, it got a lot of people a bit panicked as to, you know, the state of uh, the king's health. So then we saw the king and queen, of course, leave almost immediately afterwards to go to Buckingham Palace to take a helicopter to Sandringham. And that's where they're going to stay for at least the next few days. And so we can see, he, the, you know, the king looked good, looked himself. I think it's a sign, though, maybe that, you know, 
things are getting slightly better, I'm not going to take it for, you know, any great leaps. I'm not going from A to B to J on this. I think it's going to be a long, slow haul for, you know, repairing relationships in that family. Um, But, you know, let's face it, you know, when your dad has cancer and he's 75, um, if you want to hop on a plane, you hop on a plane. Yeah. It was interesting that you pointed out just the difference in in, in communication and, and transparency amongst the royal family, that it was, uh, I guess, 72 years ago. Yeah. I mean, the ki- the king is 75. It was 72 years ago when he lost his grandfather at a very young age. Yep. And, uh, and King George's illnesses uh, weren't talked about at all. No, no. I've read about it. And my mother, who, you know, who lived through it, has talked to me about it. She said, you know, we all knew he went in for surgery. They converted the ballroom at Buckingham Palace into an operating room because one didn't go back then. One didn't go into a hospital. But you never heard what happened. He, of course, had lung cancer. He was a chain smoker. His health was completely broken by the war and by, you know, suddenly being thrust onto the throne, you know, and he was dying of, of lung cancer and nothing. You never heard a word of it. You saw him getting frailer and frailer and gaunter and gaunter but you it was simply never talked about it was only later when biographies and everything came out that people learned oh my goodness he had lung cancer but it was simply never done in that era and today is just different i mean the other thing about today is that the media and especially social media the way it works you can't kind of dance around these illnesses and stuff like that. You can't vanish for, you know, if you're king, you can't vanish for a few months. You're going to get noticed. And especially this king who does nearly, I mean, I do the count every year. Uh, He did nearly 500 engagements last year. I mean, the man's a workaholic. And so he's going to be missed. So I think that's why they were being quite open and transparent with things. Right. Trying to get it ahead of it and also to, to yep. control it, too, by sort of saying, here's what we're going to say and here's what we're not going to say about uh, about what the king uh, is well, going through right now. I mean, in terms yep. of the, the, you know, the specifics of it, but at least uh, explaining right away so there wasn't a ton of speculation about why perhaps his engagements had, had vanished, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, this is this is why you 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 know why all the PR people say get out so you can shape the narrative. Word was starting apparently yesterday was starting to leak out because of course not only did he have to tell his family, but he had to tell the governments of the ten countries he's head of state. Right. Sorry, the fifteen countries he's head of state, and so word was starting to kind of leak out. So you know they did this, and of course also the timing because as you point out, they announced it yesterday. Today's the de- the anniversary of his grandfather's death. I don't think they would have wanted to announce it today because then the link, of course, to what happened 72 years ago becomes very strong. Right. Um, and they think about that. They have you know people who look at calendars who kind of go, mm, okay, we're going to do this then. Um, and you could also see when they were announcing Kate's surgery and that he announced he was going in the next week for the prostate mm-hmm. procedure. A large one. Exactly. For in a way to kind of take the pressure off her announcement, you know, so it's a double barrel thing. And then, of course, when they were both they both left hospital the same day, he she did it very quietly. No pictures. He and the queen left together. So everyone had a picture of him. I mean, I'm sorry, who leaves hospital wearing a suit and a tie? Patricia Treble is with us this half hour, royal commentator and author of the Right Royalty newsletter on Substack. We're talking about King Charles's cancer diagnosis that was made public yesterday by the palace. His son, Prince Harry, 
flew uh, from L.A., from California, to go visit him today. There was obviously concern about what that might mean. Uh, the palace isn't saying what form of cancer he has. They're certainly uh, keeping that private, as as is their right. Patricia, I was just looking at the fact, I mean, the last time we spoke was, on, was at his coronation, and that really wasn't yeah. that long ago. These are the very early days of his reign. I mean, he was, you know, 74 when he ascended the throne. This was going to be a different kind of monarchy. And health issues were going to perhaps play a part in his reign as well. Yeah, I mean, you you simply just have the st- statistics, right? I mean, if you're going to be diagnosed with cancer, quite often it's in your 70s. Um, Prime Minister Rishi Sunak of Britain um, said today that they caught it in the early stages. Right. So whatever it is, that sounds good. We all know people who've gone through, you know, cancer treatment, and we know kind of the steps involved. So, I mean, I think those are all good indications. But yeah, it's a matter of time. He's in fabulous health. I mean, he's, you know, he's had some issues. He's got, he's got a bad back, you know, he's fallen off a few horses a few times, uh, broken things. But aside from that, he's, he's in excellent shape. I mean, this is a man who, when he wants to relax, like when he's up in Scotland, he goes mushroom picking, you know, he repairs walls and, and hedgerows for relaxation. Not exactly my relaxation, but he loves that sort of stuff. So, I mean, he's, he is in very good shape. And he's he's always done that through his entire life. And this is the time when that holds you in good stead. It's your lifestyle and your genes. Right. And by the time you hit your 70s and 80s, that's what's carrying you through. What impact does this have then on just the, the day-to-day? You mentioned it already, on the day-to-day yeah. operations of the monarchy. Clearly, he's been the most visible of the royal family uh, in the last year, yeah. 18 months. Uh, and he's not going to be able to do any public uh, public appearances for a while. Others will step in, no doubt. But just for the functioning of, of the monarchy, all stays the same so people understand. this is There's no yeah. handing off things or so. No, exactly. Nothing is handed off. I mean, they have... They always have the backup, right? They know how to do this. And they actually last year in a move changed the uh, the number of people who could be counselors of state. So if the king is out of the country or if he is ill or unable to make decisions that he has to make as the head of state, two counselors of state can step in and do that. And the spouse and the, and the first forward line of succession of the throne. And of course, that's the problem is adults, only adults. And the problem is that that includes Harry, Andrew, and Princess, his daughter, Princess Beatrice, who, of course, not working royals. So last year, they tweaked it all. They added Princess Anne and Prince Edward, his siblings, who, mm-hmm. of course, are stalwart working orders. So now you've got four. You've got the Queen, Queen Camilla, Prince William, Anne and Edward. So that's all taken care of. I mean, he's going to just keep doing his job. But I think what we're also going to see is like the queen during the pandemic when she kind of went into her bubble and you had uh, then prince charles kind of stepping forward i think what we'll ha- we'll see is we'll see prince william stepping forward i mean it might be a little slower because of course you know kate is still recovering and will yeah. be recovering Got the three for at kids, least another right? yeah. Like, yeah 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 like two months she's going to be she's going to be recovering but I think we're going to see him. So tomorrow, uh, William does an investiture. He's back in doing that sort of thing. Um, normally, it's the king and William who do those. I mean, obviously, Anne and William will simply have to do more of them. We're going to see, I think, a higher profile of Queen Camilla. You know, she often does, you know, engagements on her own, but she does a lot with the king. But now we're going to see her on her own a lot. And that'll raise her profile. Um And there are still a lot of working royals out there. You know, people are like, oh, it's a slimmed down monarchy. You know, we need more people. It's like, well, do we? I don't know. I think we have to reimagine what the what the 
what the royal family's duties are in today's society. Um, because a lot of this stuff really hasn't changed that much from when the late queen was on the throne. And let's face it, she was on the throne for 70 years, and a lot of stuff has changed. That's kind of what this what this year was going to be for, was doing a lot of the behind-the-scenes nuts and bolts kind of thinking about what the monarchy is going forward. I mean, he's already making little tweaks here and there, but we were going to see more of that. And I think that will simply continue. Well, Patricia, uh, we'll be watching. Thank you so much. You're more than welcome. Country singer Toby Keith died at the age of 62, more than two years after he was diagnosed with stomach cancer. He announced that diagnosis publicly uh, in June of 2022, saying he'd been diagnosed back in the fall of 2021. And we've been talking about sort of sharing that news because, of course, uh, in relation to the king, uh, King Charles and his cancer diagnosis yesterday, he was seen in public for the first time today. As I mentioned earlier, he was on his way with Queen Camilla to Sandringham in Norfolk. That's one of the royal residences, leaving London for a bit. Um, not before his son, uh, Prince Harry, the Duke of Sussex, flew in overnight from L.A. just to see him. He saw him for about half an hour today. So that led, led some credence, of course, to the fact that, like any family, the royal family is just a family when these sorts of things are announced. Now, we have few details about the king's uh, diagnosis, or specifically what cancer he's suffering from, just that it was discovered during a recent procedure to treat an enlarged prostate, but it is not prostate cancer. He's begun outpatient treatment already. Again, both of his sons were informed before his diagnosis, about his diagnosis before the announcement, which is common, of course, uh, in most cases. You think about how difficult sharing that news is. And then in the case of a public figure uh, like the King, how quickly it has to be shared publicly as well. Uh, in London today, people were reacting to the news. Here's what they had to say. I think it's very sad. And we all know somebody who's got cancer. I'm off to work and someone there's got cancer. You know, but uh, as someone stated on the news, well, it doesn't matter who you are, um, you still get cancer. Is it one in two people? Yeah, but very sad. Yeah, just people in London today talking about uh, hearing that news. And of course, you know, I, almost all of us, I think, know someone or have had contact with someone who's had cancer and had that in our lives at some point in time. Researchers estimate there will be or would be about 240,000 new cancer cases and 86,000 cancer deaths in Canada in 2023 alone. That's about 655 people a day diagnosed. So this touches just about every one of us in some way, shape, or form. Uh, again, 9 in 10 cancer cases in this country are diagnosed in people older than 50. So in that sense, the King's diagnosis is perhaps a little bit less of a surprise, but it's uh, no less scary. And it's a reminder that the royal family is indeed just a family like the rest of ours. And when it comes to these sorts of affairs, you can only imagine that uh, even a king can feel uh, pretty alone and it can be a pretty scary and unsettling time, uh, even for King Charles. So we thought we'd take this opportunity tonight with World Cancer Day just behind us uh, to speak about how you share that news, what works best to overcome some of the obvious challenges and fears. And joining me now is Sandra Krukel. She's EVP of Mission Information and Support at the Canadian Cancer Society. Sandra, thanks for your time tonight. Oh, it's my pleasure, Ben. Thanks for having me on your show. I was reading your biography, obviously, and thinking about how someone in your shoes would react to the news of such a high-profile cancer diagnosis, and how you must, must see it just a little bit differently than many of the rest of us. Well, I, I mean, it is part of um, my job on a daily basis to be living this reality. And as you said in your opening, it, it affects so many of us across Canada, you know, in our lifetimes. Um one in four people are expected to die of cancer and nearly half of us will be diagnosed. And of course, some of us will survive and that's definitely what we hope for the, 
for the king. Um, but it does create a moment for all of us to pause and think about what this means for us as individuals. Um, we can all kind of imagine the conversations that the king has probably had with those that are closest to him. Imagine if we haven't already experienced this in our own lives, what those conversations might be um, like for us or people we love at some point. Um, and it does make us think about our own health and you know, what we can do potentially to detect cancer early um, and set ourselves up for the best outcomes. Yeah, I, I was thinking because, of course, it's touched all of our lives at some point how difficult, even for a king, this kind of, this kind of news, how difficult it would be to hear uh, and that, that, mm -hmm. that lonely moment that you have and, and that, that urge, of course, he, he would have no choice. He wouldn't be able to clam up, but that urge to sort of withdraw, right? No doubt. Yeah, and I think, you know, many people... Um, you know, in, in my experience, when, when you first hear this kind of news, it, it can be quite difficult to process and take it all in. It's hard to get um, news that is this significant, that could have an impact on um, your future and your life and process it all in one fell swoop. <laughs> and most people, I would say everybody needs a moment to process and needs to hear the information multiple times and take it in, in, in small chunks um, and, and to start begin to begin processing what it means for them, let alone how they would begin communicating it to the rest of their family. And in the case of the King, you know, he, he's having to communicate it to the whole world. Yeah, that that certainly adds adds complexity to it as well. Um, when you when you look at the at the benefits though of that step by step process of, of both learning of a diagnosis such as that and then trying to figure out how you're going to tell people, I suppose sharing it. I mean, we saw um, Prince Harry fly to London uh, overnight. Clearly, you know, like every other family, there is um, maybe just a sense of, of urgency about these things. When this is, regardless of how severe the diagnosis may be, there's a sense of needing to be by the sides of those who've just been received the news. How important is it for for, for people who've who've been diagnosed to to begin to reach out and to begin to share that information with the people closest to them? Yeah, it's it's really important because you know facing a cancer um, diagnosis and. You know, uh, it does look different for everybody depending on the severity of the situation, but it really does take a society of support around you. And your friends and your family are that first layer of support. Um, and so we do all need to have those conversations with, with our support network. Um, and it can be a really, really important part of overcoming um your own fears and of processing your own feelings as you have a conversation with the people that you trust most um, and also with uh, professionals that have experience in this area. Um, it, it's, it's a valuable part of processing for yourself um, and expressing what you're going through as part of um, your overall journey. How does one begin? Where do you begin in that situation? Again, I was thinking about the King and others. I think we've all known people who've had to share that news over time, unfortunately. Uh, and thinking about 
the difficulties of processing it for yourself, but then also wanting to be able to to communicate it in a way that feels comfortable for you, uh, but also allows you to, to let people around you know what you're going through. Yeah, and, and, and that's something really important that you just said there about being comfortable for you. And it, it is uh, a critical part in this to to pause for a moment and think about what do you need as you're communicating as well as the pressure that people might feel that they have to communicate this out to um, the people in their circle. So one of the things that you certainly do want to do first is is to prepare and, you know, to take a little, a moment for yourself to um, decide how you want to share this information. Are you sharing it in person? Is it over the phone? And to think about what you want to say and how much detail you want to give about um, your circumstance. Um, it can be helpful too to think about the kinds of questions that people might have for you so that you can think through what some of your answers might be. Um, and really importantly to know, um, you don't have to answer every single question or know the answer to every single question. What, what a person chooses to share um, can be as little or as much as they feel like sharing. Um, and also that reflects perhaps the nature of the relationship with, that you have, obviously, with the people that you are sharing this with. It was interesting to note that uh, publicly, at least, the uh, not to always go back to the king, but publicly, at least, they didn't discuss what exactly he's been diagnosed with. And and, and you could see them sort of uh, doing going through the same process that you just mentioned in terms of respecting his privacy medically, as mm-hmm. well as, as be wanting to share the diagnosis in a, in a larger way, uh, as, as yeah. I suppose he would have to, but, but still maintaining a certain level of privacy around all of this for himself as well. Yeah, and that's a really important part. If, you know, if you can just think of a person as a person and not necessarily the king, because this is such a, uh, a critical piece of health information, um, you, you should be able to be in control of how much of it um, you, you share and to whom and at what pace you share it. Um, but I certainly really applaud the king for intentionally mentioning that it was cancer, because it also does give those of us in society a moment to reflect and pause and think about uh, what we can do to um, to support each other, people in our own lives who have cancer, and also what we can do um, in our lives to ensure we are um, participating in screening and early detection um, so that, you know, we ourselves are in the best position possible to have positive outcomes when it comes to cancer. Right. When you look at the reaction, then maybe perhaps on the flip side, how people around the person react, because I think that's often one of those. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, again, we saw we saw his son fly back overnight to go see him and so on. And I think uh, any of us who've been through this understand how devastating that news can be and how you have that urge to go be with the person or want to be around them or want to know more or want to do everything you can to bring them some measure of comfort in, in, in a very difficult time. But I suspect there's also you need to respect boundaries as well when it comes to perhaps not for, for a father and son, but you need to respect boundaries as well if you find yourself in a situation where someone very close to you or someone you know uh, has this news to share. Yeah, I think, you know, that that need for support um, and that need also for um, space or silence or not forcing conversation, it does go both ways and, and that's an important part of it. And so, you know, I always encourage people in, the, in these situations if um, you're the person who is sharing this information about cancer, you know, 
think about when you want to have the conversations. Be be honest about whether or not you have capacity um, to have a conversation at a given moment in time. You don't need to force it. You can you can reschedule. You can share with somebody that you just don't feel up to talking about it right now. It can take energy to provide those kind of updates on your diagnosis and your treatment and all of that status. And, and that can feel really vulnerable. Um, so people can also choose to have, you know, a person in their family appointed to help them with those tasks. And that, that can be really helpful. And, you know, on the flip side, if you are the person who's wanting to support somebody, it's, I think, important to realize that sometimes it's sitting there quietly beside them, holding their hand, just being present, um, letting somebody know that you're there for them and, and listening for how you can help, but not, not forcing that either. Um, it's that consistency of just presence and being sensitive to somebody's needs um, that is the most important thing that you can do in, in many circumstances. Of course, since it's 2024, I do notice on social media all the time people who are sort of very outspoken about their diagnosis and their willingness to fight it and want to talk about it, want people to know yeah. about it. Yeah, I mean, for, for uh, everybody is a bit different and, and, and what all of us need is a little bit different and um, there's lots of different avenues um, out it today for us to communicate publicly about um, about our diagnosis and and you can get some really wonderful beautiful support in those in those ways. Sometimes it can be challenging um, because you might not get the reaction from the public that you're expecting. So there's also really wonderful resources. Um, out there that are very sort of purpose-built for people to talk about their cancer experience. Um, there's a, a program that I would love your listeners to know about that the Canadian Cancer Society has called um, Cancer Connection, which is an online community that's moderated and really nice and safe supporting environment for people who either are experiencing cancer themselves or who are loved ones of somebody with cancer. Um, if they're looking for support, and, um, you know, that similar sort of shared experience amongst others who are, who are dealing with something similar, it can be a lovely place to go um, and sometimes removes that worry that people have when they are sharing with their friends and their family and their loved ones who are worried about them too. That can be a weight for people. You know, that can be a stress. Right. You don't want to worry people. You don't want to make them scared. Um, and being to, able to find these places that are kind of separate from that can be really, really valuable. Sandra Krukel is EVP of Mission Information and in Support of the Canadian Cancer Society. We've been talking about cancer because, of course, we had uh, some very major cancer cases, a diagnosis for the king, of course, yesterday. We've been talking about that. And then uh, today we learned that uh, country singer Toby Keith had died at the age of 62, more than two years after he's diagnosed with stomach cancer. And, of course, that has doctors in the States reminding people about uh, about the risks of stomach cancer and so on. Um, Sandra, I, I guess one of the big things, and, of course, this has been talked about a lot, that even the Prime Minister in Britain was today saying that the king... Luckily, it had been caught early because he'd gone in for that, mm -hmm. uh, that prostate uh, procedure. Uh, I suppose early detection, again, remains oh, oh so important. Yeah, it really does. You know, in, in, it, in the case of cancer, the earlier you detect it, the better the outcomes are. Um, and so it's really important for people to 
uh, know their body, know how it's normally function, and and to report to their physician when they have any symptoms that last for any kind of length of time that are unusual, any lumps, bumps, changes, um, bleeding, um, digestive upset, anything that is not kind of um, that is out of the ordinary is important to discuss with your with your healthcare provider. And it's also right. really important to participate in routine screening uh, for the types of cancers that have um, screening available. Of course, the challenge sometimes these days for so many, uh, uh, so many people, including myself, by the way, is that I don't have a family physician, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that is one of the great challenges that we're facing in Canada right now and uh, something that the Canadian Cancer Society thinks is really important for for governments to address is um, the healthcare resourcing crisis, the humans that um, make up our healthcare system, physicians, nurses, um, and others that are there to support us. It's it's critical that people do have access to these these resources because um, it is our health and our well-being that depends on it. Right. I, I always tragedies when you hear about people passing so young or someone being diagnosed like this. But again, it, it is important. Another opportunity to talk about it. It always strikes me that we could actually talk about this every day, but we don't, of course. Yeah. Yeah. But it is a great reminder. And it is one of the reasons I'm I'm glad that the King did share this news that it was cancer with the public, because it does give us this moment that you know, we, you and I wouldn't be talking probably otherwise. Um, and it's important for people to know there are actions they can take. So in BC, you know, there's breast screening um, programs to participate in, cervical cancer screening programs to participate in, colorectal cancer screening programs, and as well for people um, who uh, currently smoke or who um, have uh, in the past smoked their lung cancer um, screening programs and um, if you go on the Canadian Cancer Society website, people can find information there about what age you should start and all of those details and, and how you can connect with screening programs. It's, um, it's hard sometimes to make those steps to participate in these things, but it's really important not to delay. Well, Sandra, I appreciate your time tonight. Thank you so much. You're welcome. My pleasure. We're going to dive into Canadian English, one of my favorite subjects right now. Um, uh, Steve, Sizzlin' Steve has a question for me. Is it soda or pop? You know, Steve, because I grew up in Montreal, and this is going to come up because Montrealers speak a unique or use unique terms. Um, we call them soft drinks in Montreal. I know that sounds like too many words, but we called them soft drinks growing up. Always, always. I'd never heard. I mean, I knew the pop from Pop Shop uh, when we used to go to Ontario and so on. Schedule or schedule uh definitely schedule I, I don't know to me that's always a pretty easy one obviously living in the uk everyone says schedule uh but we just kept with schedule why not uh but here are some other ones and these are all from this new survey on canadian english that you can actually go participate in i'll give you the i'll give you the uh, website once we're done what do you call a water valve on an indoor sink or bathtub to control the flow of water tap or faucet how about a small cloth for washing your face? Is it A, a face cloth, B, a face flannel? I've never heard anyone use the term face flannel. If you have, let me know. And C, washcloth. What about an upholstered piece of furniture with room for three people in a row? A, a sofa, B, a Chesterfield, and C, a couch. 
or a garment you wear over pajamas at home? Is it A, a bathrobe, B, a dressing gown, dressing gown that is, C, a house coat, or D, a robe? I'll tell you what I answered to all of those. I mean, for me, it's a face cloth, uh, always. It's a tap, a face cloth. It's a sofa, but I do remember Chesterfield, and uh, it's, a, it's a house coat. That's what I used to call them. So you tell me what you think. One eight seven seven three nine nine ninety eight ninety eight, and we'll dig in this to his, dig into this as well. And tell me if there's any expression that you've heard other Canadians use that you either think is great or absolutely abominable. Something you really dislike. One eight seven seven three nine nine ninety eight ninety eight. Again, those are just some of the questions. The ones I was reading earlier uh, that you'll be asked to tackle in the new survey of Canadian English. Uh, the peculiarities of English, that hybrid of American, British, and homegrown terms and tones, has often been the topic of. Less formal research. I found some for you. For example, this one. Uh, these are two broadcasters who are doing a San Jose Sharks pregame. Brody Brazil is from California. Curtis is from Saskatchewan. Here's what they had to say. Uh, that word right there, Brownie, you're from Saskatchewan. That's where you were born. How were you raised to say that word? Well, first of all, I was raised pasta. You guys are weird. Uh, what is that? That's a toque. Is one, it really? One syllable. Toque. Say it. Beanie. Two syllables. Okay, now all so of a sudden, maybe, I'm, maybe I'm the bad up. guy now. All right, I'm the bad guy. All right, one more. Now, this one blows my mind. That, that's a parking garage. Like, I'm going to go put my car in the parking garage. In fact, at work here, I park in a parking garage. But in Canada, they call it a parkade. Like an arcade, but a parkade. There you have it. I mean, oddly enough, parkade is only used in some parts of the country. It's not used everywhere where I grew up. It was a parking garage, right? So all of these things are what McGill is setting out. These researchers of McGill are setting out to do in what is really a full-fledged research project. Because if you dig around on YouTube or on social media, there are hundreds of videos about English-Canadian pronunciation and the words we use. All of it very interesting. This follows up on a study that was conducted back in 1972 by researchers at the University of Victoria. They examined variation and change in how Canadians across the country spoke English. Um, and this was the first one. I mean, they, they looked at dialects of English, like British, American, Australian. They tried to compare them, in other words, to British dialects, American dialects, Australian dialects, to see how it varied between provinces, how it varied between the sexes, how it changed from one generation to next to the next. So here we are 50 years later, 52 to be exact, and they're going to do it again and share all the results. But we thought we would figure out, till we talk a bit about this survey and what prompted it, Charles Boberg is a professor in the Department of Linguistics at McGill, and he is leading or overseeing this new survey of Canadian English. Charles, thank you. You're most welcome. It's a pleasure to talk to you. What did, I mean, what a fascinating concept. Uh, but let's go back to the beginning, Nineteen, because there was a previous one. That's why it's called the new survey, a 1972 one. Um, take me back a bit. How, how influential has that research been over the last 52 years now? Well, it's funny that that one was done uh, back in, as you said, 1972. It was actually based at the University of Victoria. And it was a couple right. of linguists at the University of Victoria who got collaborators in provinces across Canada to uh, to a, a written survey of Canadian English. It was the first time anyone had ever tried to assemble a, a, a data set covering the entire country. There had been, you know, some more local studies before, but this was the first time there was a national survey. And they, uh, wor they worked it actually through schools, and they got uh, collaborators in each province to give a survey to grade nine students uh, in English classes across the country. And then they collected all the data, and in Victoria did one of the very first computerized analyses. It was, you know, they talk about this in their method that they used the big IBM computers to analyze the data, which was a new thing then. And, um, and pro it provided the first 
ever national picture of Canadian English um, uh, pronunciation and grammar and, uh, and words, vocabulary, and spelling. So then it got a kind of buried. And so it was uh, published in a fairly obscure journal, and most people don't actually know about it. But uh, ah. specialists in Canadian English do. And it occurred to me as we were approaching 2022, which was the, you know, the 50th anniversary of this landmark watershed moment in the study of Canadian English, I thought, you know what, we should do a a, 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 a restudy. You know, we we should try to um, to, uh, to to ask some of the same questions again five decades later. What a unique opportunity to be able to see how Canadian English has changed over 50 years at basically two generations. And so it seemed like a good thing to pursue. And uh, I managed to get a little bit of funding from the federal government uh, to, to help out with the project. And and that's uh, how this new project was born. And off we run. I've always said, I mean, I, I've lived in other parts of the world. I, I've always told people, it's hard to describe Canadian English, but I know it when I hear it. And and it's an interesting, uh, but I, I, I can't imagine how much things have changed over, I mean, the, the, the composition of the country, the population has doubled. Uh, the city centers that many of us live in have grown exponentially. Uh, there are many more people from all around the world in this country now. It's going to be a fascinating um, it's going to be a fascinating insight into how we speak this language that we like to refer to as not American or not, <laughs> or I think beyond that, That's Canadian right. English. Well, yeah. That, yeah, and that was one of the main focuses of, of, the, of the project back in 1972. Of course, this is sort of an age, if you think back to that period for, for well, I guess, older people, an age of a sort of growing Canadian nationalism and a kind of concern with uh, identifying a Canadian culture and, in this case, language that was independent from both Britain and the U.S. And so a lot of the questions on the questionnaire dealt exactly with these things where we have a British term or a British pronunciation uh, and an American term or an American pronunciation. And sometimes we even also have a unique Canadian term or pronunciation. And then looking to see what is the balance between the American and British answers in different parts of the country and from different groups of people. So they actually um, not only did the grade nine students, but they had each student, they gave each student three copies of the survey. And so the student could take two home to their parents, and then they would be able to compare the parents' answers with the students' answers to get an idea of generational differences then, um, as well as the difference between males and females, so dads and moms and, and boys and girls, but also um, between the regions. And so it was uh, interested in looking to see what the mix of American and British forms would be. But you're right. I mean, in a way, so what hasn't changed about Canada since 1972? You know, it's it's a more urban country. It's a more ethnically diverse country than it used to be. Um, there's been population shifts uh, all over the place. You know, Alberta, for instance, is, I don't know, twice as big as it was back then. And, um, and you know, there's there's been just tremendous social changes. And then, you know, think about the, the influence of the Internet, for instance, on the language we have. Uh, that's uh, completely transformed the kind of contact that people have with language from other places all around the world, but particularly the United States. So, you know, we, we felt like doing a, 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 a restudy in, you know, 50 years later would really um, allow us to gather a set of data that reflects many of these sort of transformative changes in Canadian society over the last five decades. Right. And I did the survey. It was fascinating. Having grown up in Montreal, lived in other parts of Canada, obviously, it was fascinating to see, to see the, the differences. You must have started out with a premise because there are several different sections. Some of them are about uh, simply about how we 
how we pronounce certain things. There are terms that we use, there's spelling. And a lot of it, some of it is a bit, is actually uh, makes you sort of stop and think about what term, how do you pronounce something? Um, but you must have started off with a premise about what sorts of questions you wanted to ask to ascertain certain things about the way we speak this language in this country. Yes. Um, and, and we not only, you know, reprised 50 of the questions from the original survey, but we also added um, quite a few more. Uh, and these come from my own research here in Montreal over the last 25 years, looking at, um, you know, vocabulary terms in particular that uh, are, I think, even more um, reflective of regional differences across Canada than most of the items on the survey. I'm not sure why that is. Why that is? Whether I, I've somehow, I'm. I'm a, you're talking about that. You're from Quebec originally. Well, I'm actually from. I live here in Quebec now, but I, I'm actually originally from Alberta. I grew up in Edmonton. Mm -hmm. So, when I arrived in Montreal, all those Montreal words really surprised me, and I thought, you know what, we should study some of these differences. And so, um, I was coming into the project not only looking at this 1972 data and wondering how it's changed, but also with my own experience of looking at how Quebec English is dramatically different from that in Ontario and BC and Alberta and elsewhere. Um, and, uh, and, 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 and trying to you know, look at, at how those regional differences um, would also be um, changing based on the first surveys that I did of those 25 years ago. So it's a diverse set of questions that uh, try to get at all these different aspects of Canadian English. Of course, we're somewhat limited by the kinds of things you can ask on a written questionnaire. As you mentioned, some of the, t some of the questions about pronunciation, uh, maybe they're a little hard to figure out, you know, which, which one do I say? Do I say progress or do I say progress? <laughs> right, but, or do uh, I say vase? I don't think I say, I lived in England for a while, yeah. so my, mine, mine got a bit mixed up, but it was vase or vase or uh, there's leisure as well. There's either, yeah. uh, missile, yeah. missile, missile. There's a lot of ones in there that yeah. have you scratching because I feel like in Canada, you can often hear people use those terms and it's interesting. I think in a lot of places there would be one or the other, but oftentimes you offer the option of, I use both, which is interesting in a language. Yeah. Yes, and, and we followed the original survey exactly in that respect. So whenever they um, gave us sort of uh, either or either, that's actually one of the questions, either versus either. <laughs> but yeah. when, they, when they gave a either or either option or a both option, then what we did is, is follow that exactly because we wanted to make sure the two data sets were strictly comparable. So if uh, people had a choice in 1972 of saying, of saying both or either. We wanted to give them that choice today. Charles Boberg is with us. He's a professor in the Department of Linguistics at McGill University in Montreal. Uh, he's launched the New Survey of Canadian English. It builds on a 1972 uh, piece of work done at the University of Victoria, which was sort of looked into how we speak our language and trying to figure out how is it different from American? What influences are American? How does it lean on the English or the British, right? Since a lot of people um, would have had that kind of education going through school. Now, Charles, some of the terms I was really, obviously, the one, the most fun part to write is that one where you offer different uh, terminology for something. So you have the water valve on an indoor sink or a bathtub to control the flow of water. And I thought, why would you ask that? Then I saw the question. I thought, well, of course, of course. <laughs> yeah, well, that's one where in many cases um, there's a, an American term. So faucet is, uh, is an Americanism. As far as I know, no one in Britain calls it a faucet. It's a tap. Um, and that's one example where Canadians tend to follow the British 
term, uh, which is interesting because in the vast majority of cases where American and British English have different words for things like elevator and lift or truck and lorry or torch and flashlight, we always go in Canada with the American word. But there's a few exceptions, and, 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 and tap is one of them. So we wanted to make sure we got that one in there. And there's other examples, like, for instance, the last letter of the alphabet. Well, the Americans are the only people in the world, I think, who say Z for that. Yeah. <laughs> the Canadians follow the... The British, uh, the British lead in saying that on that one. Yeah, from from but, I've seen this described. A, yep. Yeah, yeah. There's also a few, you know, unique Canadian words. So, for instance, and this is one of the changes that we expect to see from 1972. Back in 1972, most Canadians, a large majority of Canadians, uh, the word they used for what we would normally call today a couch was a Chesterfield, and that right. that was an old Canadian word. Yeah, that was the dominant term back in 1972. Well, today it seems to have disappeared. So we're we're, we're trying to, tra tra to trace that as one of the perhaps sad examples of uh, the disappearance of a unique Canadian word. The eaves troughs is another good Canadian word, which seems to be to in favor of gutter uh, or gutters. Yeah, so, um, I love the way they're we're, described. We're tra we're tra yeah, we're tracking all of these changes uh, over the last 50 years, which give us a sense of how, of how the language is changing. But on the other hand, there's some American words that really don't seem to be getting any traction at all in Canada. Like, uh, does anyone call knives, forks, and spoons silverware here? Um, I think that for Canadians, as for British people, silverware means that they're made actually of silver, not stainless steel. Yeah, it's the, so it's the stuff you polish. The the, yeah, it's the yeah, stuff you polish and, and use on special occasions. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. I, so, I love yeah. that question because when I got to it, I'm like upholstered piece of furniture with room for three people in a row. I'm like, what? What could that mean? And your options are sofa, Chesterfield, or couch. Of course, I think we most of us use sofa now. But yeah, I remember. I remember the use of the word Chesterfield. I'm old, old enough to remember that. Another one that uh, that was interesting: the sweet top layer of a cake. Right. That's another one yeah, where yeah. I think we've we've adopted um, we've adopted the Americanism icing, whereas of course in Britain it's frosting. So no, actually, it's the opposite. It's a frosting. It's the opposite. The Did I get it? <laughs> there you go. Yeah. See, don't don't trust me. You're gonna have to throw out my survey. You're gonna have to throw out my survey. <laughs> and and ice, icing is the British term, and so and so we have icing sugar that we put in icing, whereas the of Americans course. call that confectionery, confectionery sugar. Or, uh, uh, but so yeah, it's it's um, th that is one also where frosting, you know, has it's it's that's one where there's some variation across the country there are lots of canadians who say frosting and lots who say icing i think the majority still say icing but that's one that that may vary by by region so yeah there's um as you were saying uh there there is you know a great deal of homogeneity in canadian english in fact that's what a lot of people think of first when they think of canadian english is this extraordinary uh, homogeneity across thousands of kilometers from Victoria to Ottawa, basically, and for, in some respects, even b beyond that to Montreal and Halifax. You know, some people say that, well, Newfoundland is really the only truly distinct part of Canada uh, in terms of the sound of English. And to some extent, that's, that's true in comparative terms. Obviously, there's a great deal more variation in British and American English than in Canadian. But there are some, some subtle differences. Well, some yeah. of these things, like you were mentioning, uh, out and about, right, as as the Canadian way of saying out and about. Yeah. Um, that's one we can't actually ask about on a written survey because there's no way of representing those sounds reliably using the English spelling system. Oh no. So, yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, so when you, the holy when you grail, the holy grail of Canadian English, the holy grail of Canadian <laughs> English. Right. 
Right. So when you see journalists writing an article about this, they'll uh, either American journalists or Canadian journalists, they'll respell it as though it's a boot, B-O-O-T, yeah. um, which, of course, is no one, no one in Canada says a boot, right? Um, no. We say something, or if, you're, if you're out <laughs> west, you say something like, you say something actually closer to a boat, right? The, the, yeah. That sails on the water, a boat, oat and a boat. Um, and in Ontario, it's something more like out and about, but that's impossible to represent in spelling. So we can't ask that question on a written questionnaire. So the kinds of pronunciation questions we ask are more things like progress versus progress or missile versus missile, genuine versus genuine, um, as you said, vase and vase and vase. So those kinds of words, because you can represent those sound differences in spelling, we're able to to, to, rep, to um to include those, but you were say, saying, you know, what about the vocabulary? And yeah, there are some differences that distinguish, for instance, Western Canadian English from Ontario English, you know, let alone Newfoundland and Nova Scotia and those places. But even within this sort of, um, this broad expanse of fairly homogeneous sounding English, um, you know, you could say that, well, you get people from Vancouver and Winnipeg and Toronto in a room together, could they tell where they're from? Probably not based on pronunciation, but there are some word differences. So, for instance, in Western Canada, you would wear runners on your feet, whereas in Ontario, you would wear running shoes. Um, now, you're a Quebecer, so you 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 don't necessarily have all these Western terms yourself, but you may have acquired some of them since. Yeah, I think I say sneakers. I think sneakers was the one, the one that always sneakers. really, uh, flum, yeah, the one that flummoxes people is is the sweet uh, is is what you drink in a can, like a, like a well, yeah. You know, what what is a what is a Coke or a Seven Up? Like what is that? And that's the one that that people people will go to will fight over that one. That's a famous one in the U.S. too. So the U.S. In terms for that, there's the general term on both coasts is soda. And in the South, people just call it a Coke, even though it's not right. Coca-Cola. Uh, but it, there's a part of the Midwest where they call it a pop. And that term seems to have crossed the border into Canada and is now the sort of normal term from B.C. to Ontario. But in Quebec, where you grew up, it's definitely not a pop. It's a soft drink. So uh, Always a boisson gazeuse, as they say in French. right? I think we kind of stole, oh, yes, stole it from exactly. each other, a soft drink. Uh, right. Charles, yeah. when, you, when you look at just as a, from a linguist's point of view, so Canadians are reassured, the given how much dialects change and accents change in a place like England, or even I, I, I knew a linguist who could tell where someone was from in Germany within about 15 kilometers, just by the way they spoke. And in Canada, we have this great benefit of sort of anonymity and yet it must be a fascinating place to study language for a linguist because it is quite different it is and it's got a fascinating history the history of canadian english goes back to the really the late 18th century when the united empire loyalists uh, fleeing the american revolution uh, came to canada and they established the first major english-speaking uh, uh, populations in uh, in the Maritimes, New Brunswick and Nova Scotia, and uh, also in Quebec and, and and Ontario, and the English, and then there was the English of Ontario and Maritimes was further affected by this massive immigration from Britain, from all over Britain, Irish people and English and Scottish coming to Canada in the 19th century. So what came out of that combination of loyalist colonial American speech? And British immigrant speech was the sort of Ontario English of the late 19th century around Confederation. But then that was kind of transplanted to the West once the Canadian Pacific Railway opened up English-speaking settlements in Western Canada. 
a lot of the actually Ontarians were, and Eastern Canadians generally, but especially Ontarians were the dominant group in many areas of the West. So they kind of transplanted Ontario English to the West. And that's why you have such tremendous homogeneity all across that region. But that doesn't mean there aren't, you know, subtle differences um, between West, the West and Ontario. Like, where do you take your car in downtown Edmonton or Vancouver? Probably in the parkade, right? Which is a real Western Canadian term. Um, in Ontario, that'd be a parking garage. Yeah, that's so the one you get used, these uh... subtle differences that, yeah. And so, and so we're really interested in, in, in finding out um, how these differences are changing over time and also how they intersect with other aspects of people's background, like their age or their sex. And uh, we're, we're, we're trying to gather a new data set that will allow us to see how the language Canadians use across the country uh, varies, uh, uh, not only how it's changed since 1972, but how it varies today. So we're hoping to get more people to answer the survey and uh, they can, they, it's, a, it's a fun survey. It takes 20, 25 minutes to do. It's anonymous and it's an easy thing to do. You just go online. Um, can, I, can I give yeah, folks sure, the, go ahead. the yeah. URL? Sure, yeah. So, um, well, you can just Google uh, for McGill. That's M-C-G-I-L-L, McGill uh, and Canadian English. That'll take you to it. But the URL would be um, mcgill.ca slash English. Uh, all one word, right. all small letters. So right. if they go all, there, there's a link to the survey, and they can participate and and add their voice to our data set. And I'll I'll, I'll repeat that as well. Uh, Charles, thank you so much, and look forward to seeing the results. You're most welcome. I, I really appreciate your, in, your interest in the project, and uh, I think it's going to be a fascinating thing to look at uh, for the next couple of decades. Awesome. Charles, thank you. Okay, you're welcome. Bye-bye. <laughs> Busy day in Ottawa when it came to the Ukraine file. They passed legislation today, the House of Commons, third reading for the Canada Free Trade Agreement with Ukraine uh, that Vladimir Zelensky signed during a visit to Ottawa last year. Trade Minister Mary Ying says it will enable Canadian businesses to help rebuild Ukraine. Conservatives, though, were the only party to vote against the legislation. In fact, they all did. They repeatedly claimed that they support Ukraine but opposed the legislation because the updated deal says both countries aim to promote carbon pricing. Of course, the Ukrainians have never had any problem with this. They've had carbon pricing for quite a while. They wanted this deal, but this is probably more about domestic politics than anything else. And of course, the prime minister jumped on that. He is choosing to not stand with Ukraine, not stand with Ukrainians, and not stand with Ukrainian Canadians. Why are they abandoning Ukraine? You want to know why he's yelling, <laughs> but the Conservatives were pushing another controversy to try and deflect from this, also related to the Ukrainian president's visit last year, when it was revealed that a Ukrainian soldier who had fought with a Nazi unit in the Second World War had been invited and praised in the House of Commons. Of course, the Speaker of the House, Anthony Rhoda, uh, who had invited him, he was one of his constituents, had to resign uh, after the fallout from that. Well, it turns out that Yaroslav Hunka was also invited to a reception held for Zelensky in Toronto that same evening, with reports saying it was the Prime Minister's office that had extended that invitation to him. So today, Conservative leader Pierre Polyev, uh, during question period, said that Trudeau should resign over this issue. So will he hold himself to the very same standard and admit that he's not fit for office? 
There you have it. And all this came on the same day that an Angus Reid Institute poll published uh, showed that there's been an increase in the number of Canadians who believe the country is giving too much support to Ukraine. That's doubled since the early weeks of the war, specifically for uh, those who voted Conservative in the past. Uh, Dominic Arell is an Associate Professor of Political Science and Chair of Ukrainian Studies at the University of Ottawa. And he joins me now. Thanks for your time tonight. My pleasure. I suppose we could start with the free trade agreement because it's been uh, a long time coming. It's certainly something the Ukrainians have been pushing for today. It's uh, made it through the House with some opposition. Uh, but is this a big deal for, for Canada and for Ukraine? Of course it is. I mean, if uh, if Canada has been uh, helping Ukraine for a long time, of course, there's been um, training the military and, and so forth. But uh, it's basically the econ- economic exchange uh, trade deals going back actually 30 years going back to early independence so it is a big deal yeah. right there was i mean obviously the ukrainians uh, voiced a lot of support for this uh, so did uh, so did other members so did other mps were you surprised at all that the conservatives held voted against this again even in its third reading in parliament well uh, we're getting into the realm of uh, canadian partisan politics here here the conservative party party playing the cultural war card which itself is not really related to the Ukraine question. So they're trying to send a different message, as I understand it, while saying that they're supporting Ukraine, but not in that particular bill. And of course, in our in our system, the the bill passes anyway. So it's kind of a, a cost-free uh, political statement that, again, as I understand it, is not related per se to the issue of whether we should support Ukraine. You know, I, I was in spent quite a bit of time in Ukraine back when the Harper government was in power, and their support for Ukraine has always been fairly unequivocal. So it was odd to see them take this political stance over the inclusion of some language around carbon, which I don't think is particularly consequential for the Ukrainians, but uh, but still take this political stand where, in fact, this bill passed with opposition in the House of Commons, which, um, you know, I think a year ago, perhaps this would have been a bill that would have been celebrated on both sides of the aisle. All the major uh, initiatives and policies taken by Canada vis-a-vis Ukraine, again, going back 30 years, but certainly going back, you know, Orange Revolution 2004, and you had this massive demonstration against electoral fraud, and then 2014, Maidan, and the the war in Donbass, Crimea, and then since the full-scale invasion 2022, they've always been unanimous because... There is this electoral imperative in Canadian politics that elections being so close, we have so many now minority governments, so every uh, riding counts, and the Ukrainian-Canadian electoral weight is sufficient to potentially sway uh, elections at the local level in between 6 and 12 ridings. So... Every single party has lined up pro-Ukraine, probably from the bottom of their heart, but also with that electoral uh, kind of uh, dynamics at play. In that sense, it is a bit surprising to me that the conservative, even if it's as a symbolic vote that is politically cost-free, may or may not prove to be electorally cost-free. Um, in the greater scale of things, although economic and military support to Ukraine not the free trade agreement, but the, like the state-to-state uh, exchange may prove more consequential electorally than this free trade agreement. So we'll see when and the election is only two years down the road and you know, two years in, is an eternity and certainly will be an eternity for Ukraine. So we'll see. But it is a break in 
in this practice of unanimity support towards Ukraine. Right. I, I suspect the conservatives think that people won't be paying a huge amount of attention to this broadly uh, when it comes to an election. Uh, one of the issues that came up again today in Parliament was this whole issue around Yaroslav Hunko, which I'm sure you remember from uh, President Zelensky's visit um, to Canada. Um, any, any surprise that, that he would have, I mean, this is obviously the conservatives were trying to play this up today. Any surprise that he would have been invited as well to this second reception in Toronto after he was faded in Parliament uh, earlier in the day? You know, the embarrassment with Hunka back in September, it became clear that it had been kind of improvised last minute by the speaker who had, of course, the authority to to invite Canadians to uh, to functions without being vetted by the government itself, by the PMO. Turns out that Mr. Hunka lives in the writing of Mr. Rota, right, of the, the then Speaker of the House. So it was something at the local level with the local Ukrainian association. Nothing was vetted nationally. And that was the, the embarrassment, the scandal. But now we're learning that, well, the PMO's office also invited him uh, on the recommendation of the national Ukrainian-Canadian Congress, not the local branch. So here there was no vetting on either side at the national level, um, but he didn't show up. But um, that would have been a much greater embarrassment, obviously. On both sides, the Ukrainian-Canadian Congress national office should have known better uh, in terms of the political perception of inviting Mr. Hunka. Yeah. I mean, when I looked at it, having spent quite a bit of time covering Parliament Hill, I thought, you know, here he was being applauded earlier in the day, probably would have been added to that list anyway. It just felt like there was a sort of a collective amnesia around what he paused. Someone said, oh, this will be a great idea. You know, he fought in the Second World War. He's a proud Ukrainian. He's been out protesting or at least uh, protesting in favor of Ukraine on the streets. There's TV reports about him in northern Ontario. You know, what a great idea. No one stopped to ask, well, 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 well who exactly is this? Right. And I think that's been a bit jarring. We understand in Ukrainian political memory and in the diaspora, even the uh, Waffen-SS division is seen as a unit fighting for Ukrainian independence and against the Soviet Soviet forces retaking Galicia and then committing atrocities, which they did. So we understand that. But the fact of the matter is the symbolism you fought in a Nazi unit, even with the, the Nazi logo, and that is a completely no-go, certainly for Canadian political opinion. They should have known better, but they didn't. We have that situation. Dominic Arell is a associate professor of political science and chair of Ukrainian studies at the University of Ottawa. Dominic, when you looked at this this polling out today from the Angus Reid Institute, it was interesting to see the shift because people who voted for political parties in the last election, all of them have, have, have cooled a little bit towards uh, helping Ukraine, just a little bit. But certainly amongst conservative voters, it was a big jump uh, between between the last election and now, or between May 2022. And now a significant jump. Is, is that surprising to you at all? 19 to 43 percent. That's a big that's a big number. It is a big number. We certainly have a, a base here in the Conservative Party that intersects with a base in the Republican Party in the United States and probably read the, the news from saying the same similar sources, whether TV or on, on social media. And uh, we know the trend in the United States. We'll, we'll talk about it in a moment. Uh, in the Republican Party. So we have that situation, except that if you look at the numbers, 
even within the Conservative Party, it's still something like two to one helping Ukraine, either helping Ukraine at the current level or a little more. Whereas in the other parties, it's something like three to one or four to one. Of course, there's a cooling off and uh, Ukraine is less in the news. It's normal. But nationally, it's still uh, the support is at 67 percent. Again, either we support Ukraine at the current level or we increase, which is huge, which is still quite significant. Now, within the conservative party, uh, different dynamics. But what we've observed in the United States is something similar. Big difference, though, is that the leadership because of the return of Donald Trump. So there's something in the United States about the top down, like the the, the leadership is basically influencing what the base is thinking like on the Ukraine question. I don't see that in Canada. I'd be very surprised if we see that in Canada. Electorally, I doubt very much that it would be to the advantage of uh, the Conservative Party to have this sudden line regarding Ukraine, if they want to, for, um, to to compete in the number of ridings in the Toronto area or in the in Western Canada in, in the next election. But we do see a change. We do see a change. We're seeing a shift. I mean, I don't think it's wrong for people to question what's, you know, where money goes and what's happening and so on. But uh, but yeah, it is a noticeable shift. Speaking mm-hmm. of Tucker Carlson, of course, this is the worst kept secret is in Moscow. Looks like he's going to sit down for an interview with Vladimir Putin. I mean, that sort of symbolizes in some ways where this whole conversation has drifted on the right in America. And it's an interesting one because uh, it's an odd, not that it's an odd wedge, wedge issue, but but it certainly has become one of those issues that uh, that has become caught up in this ongoing fight. But you you referred to culture wars earlier, but in this ongoing battle between the Republicans and the Democrats, and Ukraine's become yet another you know sort of ball to be kicked around in that one. You see, Tucker Carlson has been consistently before the full scale invasion and right after the full scale invasion towing the Russian line, but he. In the first year, certainly, uh, like in 2022, first year after the full-scale invasion, was a minority voice, but with a big platform because he still had his evening show at Fox News before he was fired. But among Republicans, that was a minority voice that didn't carry uh, the weight that it carries now. Tucker Carlson has been systematically featured on the Russian evening propaganda shows from the beginning of the war. This is not about Ukraine. The Republican Party basically abandoning Ukraine. It's not because uh, it's war fatigue and uh, they're having second qualms about how the money and uh, it's ideological. It's uh, Trump has been consistently aligning itself with Russia when he was president. And uh, on the first day of the invasion, you can look it up. He called Putin a genius. I mean, he was almost laughed out, but it was kind of a kind of a background noise. He didn't have the the power that he he got back today. Uh, in since, it has become now the dominant uh, the dominant narrative in the Republican Party. Not necessarily the dominant narrative among Republican voters. Ukraine is not on the top of their list. I mean, they'll go along with Ukraine because, but it is about borders. It is about the economy, and it's about culture wars. In Ukraine, okay, if we have to be anti-Ukraine, it is really top-down because uh, the Republican Party has turned into a quasi-authoritarian party. I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. My pleasure. 
Canada's experiencing, I don't know, you must have seen reports about this recently because it's been talked about quite a bit in the last month. Canada's experiencing a record number of cases of a dangerous, fast-moving or dangerous, fast-moving strep infections. Uh, healthcare professionals across the country are saying um, invasive group A streptococcus or IGAS, I guess it's called, uh, could be responsible for many of the symptoms of illnesses that we're seeing that many of you are feeling this winter. For the most part, of course, strep A are treatable. However, there can be serious risks associated with the infection. Here's Dr. Dominic Mertz at McMaster. The severe infections, the invasive strep A infections remain rare, but we certainly see a trend towards increasing cases. Right. There you have it. Uh, apparently, according at least to the National or to the Public Health Agency of Canada, more than 4,600 cases were confirmed in 2023 at the National Microbiology Lab in Winnipeg. That's an increase of more than 40% over the previous yearly high in 2019. So there has been a spike and it's prompted public health officials and medical experts to warn about the potential severity of the disease. Dr. Brian Conway is medical director at the Vancouver Infectious Diseases Centre. He joins me now. Dr. Conway, thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, I guess just what's the state of things that we're seeing across the country? Because we're hearing a lot about it. Uh, I actually don't know anyone personally who's had it yet, so I'm just wondering what uh, what the status of it is. So group A strep has always been around. It causes skin infections and throat infections. And in the vast majority of cases, these infections are relatively mild and easily treated with antibiotics. In a small number of cases, it can be severe and it can cause this eye gas that you were referring to or the bacteria spreads in the blood, and it's a very severe infection that uh, has about a 10% mortality to it. number of cases have gone up significantly in 2023, and we just need to be aware of it. In the cases where people have uh, passed away, generally it's been the second infection on top of a first infection. So the four cases of children that died in British Columbia, they had another infection in two cases, influenza, in two cases, something called metanumovirus, Reduced the immune system, causes uh, respiratory symptoms. Group A strep came in, became invasive, and unfortunately led to uh, mortality. So that's really what we're seeing. Number of cases have doubled compared to what we are used to historically. And we think it's because people are getting respiratory infections and getting group A strep that becomes invasive on top of it. Right. So sort of a combination of things, because I know there were warnings, I yeah. think, in the in Europe last year. I mean, this is sort of one of those things that we've seen uh, circulating uh, for some time now. Right. There's a, there's outbreaks that we're reporting in United Kingdom, Europe, New Zealand, Asia, that are similar to what we're seeing in Canada. Ontario has the best information for all of Canada. In October, November, December of 2023, there were double the usual number of cases of invasive group A strep, and it was the highest uh, number of cases ever reported over a three-month period. So wow. we just need to understand it and be careful. Yeah. Uh, tell me a bit about, about what's, for, 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 if you want to forget, you mentioned what strep was earlier, but what are the symptoms generally? Like, how do you, how do you know that what you have could be something uh, that, that might be dangerous? So the usual mild case is a sore throat. It's what we call commonly strep throat. You have a sore throat, and it, it sort of slowly gets worse. You go see the doctor. In some cases, they'll give you antibiotics once they make a diagnosis and cause skin infections in a similar way. But in a small minority of cases, it's a rapidly progressive infection. So you get very sick over the period of, let's say, a day. You have a very high fever that does not respond to taking acetaminophen, Tylenol. You get a bit lethargic. You get very unwell, and it happens fairly quickly. And that's sort of the pace of the illness of invasive group A strep 
And that's the illness that you really need to be worried about and go to the emergency room to have it dealt with. Right. Uh, does, does it progress? You, you mentioned it progresses quite quickly. Yeah, I think that's one of the hallmarks is if you have a sore throat and it's getting very, uh, very severe, very quickly, you have a fever. Usually if you have an illness of, of, of most types, you take a couple of acetaminophen, the fever goes down. If the fever doesn't go down, if you're getting very tired, very lethargic, and in children, you really have to be aware of this. Four cases in British Columbia were in children. You really need to be aware of this and, and uh, consult because uh, this can be treated with antibiotics. So, so the earlier you get it, the better the outcome may be. You were mentioning, I think I was listening to you in another interview, saying that, of course, part of this is seasonal and, and this is the season. Absolutely. This is respiratory illness season. So the sore throat part, is a, is a respiratory illness. And unfortunately, people really haven't gotten COVID shots, flu shots at a rate that we would have expected. So you probably are getting a first infection, and then you can get a second infection on top of it. And the risk of that second infection being more severe is, is obviously uh, significant if uh, in the setting of a first infection in the absence of vaccination. Right. And as you mentioned, uh, you've already mentioned, this is treatable, right? I mean, if you catch it early, this is treatable. Yeah, well, group A strep is not a virus. It's a bacteria. It responds right. to good old-fashioned penicillin. So oh. I think if you have strep throat, you take penicillin, you get better. If you have a strep skin infection, you take penicillin, you get better. The key is to recognize it early enough that uh, people can provide you with the antibiotics that will uh, work. And again, the keys are that in a small minority of cases, and again, this is a small minority of cases of the group A strep. It progresses quickly, makes you very sick. That's a situation where you need to consult very quickly. They'll probably give you antibiotics intravenously at first to uh, really uh, stem the tide, and uh, that's what we need to be aware of. Right. And as you mentioned, I mean, kids obviously are susceptible to this as well, and, and I, I suspect it would be older Canadians as well. You're, and it builds on, if you have another existing infection already, you should be watching out for this as well. That's exactly right. And I think in kids, they're together more often than, uh, than adults. Um, they may not uh, be uh, uh, distancing themselves, especially if they're unwell, and they get that first infection and the second infection on top of it. Dr. Brian Conway is with us, the SAF Hour Medical Director at uh, Van the Vancouver Infectious Disease Centre. We've been talking about strep. It's been, there's been sort of a, a kind of nasty, nasty variant, variant, a more aggressive form kind of moving around. That's not the right way of putting it. Sorry, Dr. Conway. Fast-moving strep <laughs> infections. It's a bacteria, not a virus. Sorry. Yes. Um, I, yes. I, I was interested. Obviously, you mentioned it earlier, and this has been one of those warnings that's been said over and over again. It tends to build on other respiratory viruses. So, uh, you know, Make sure you're up to date on your vaccines, in other words. Absolutely. I think our first line of defense, we learned this in the pandemic, is to get your vaccines. We have flu shots. We have COVID shots. People haven't um, necessarily gotten these vaccination at rates that uh, we had expected. It's still time to get that. And, and um, it, it'll help protect against those infections and the consequences of any secondary infections, such as eye gas. Right. I was I was noticing that the flu season, at least according to the Public Health Agency of Canada, has been a relatively light one. I mean, I don't want to dissuade people from, from getting vaccines, but it's been a relatively, it's been not as bad as it has been in years past. Well, not as bad as last year. It's a little bit right. below an average year, but it still is uh, quite uh, quite significant. It's more severe 
in young children and in older adults whose immune systems are weakened for various uh, various reasons. Uh, there's still COVID around. People are, are getting COVID. There's a number of deaths every day. The number of hospitalizations is, is over 100 here in British Columbia. We, uh, we shouldn't forget that. And it's really in that context that strep throat or strep skin infections is occurring. So if you, if you get exposed to strep at the wrong time, when you just got exposed to something else, your immune system is weakened, your respiratory system is weakened because of the infection that is occurring, and all of that together contributes to make the strep infection potentially more severe. Yeah, I was reading that, uh, again, the Public Health Agency of Canada was saying that about 3,660 patients were in hospital as, as a result of COVID uh, by the end of January 30th, uh, and 172 were admitted to the ICU. So still uh, still an issue. It's still happening out there. Uh, Dr. Conway, do we have a, an idea? Someone asked me about this today in, in context uh, to this story about strep. Uh, do we have an idea of the, sort of the long-term impacts of, of, of the pandemic on our ability to fight off these other, these other bacteria, for instance, in the case of strep? Well, 25% of people that get COVID have long-term post-COVID symptoms of various sorts. And in many cases, this is respiratory symptoms. So their lungs, their respiratory system doesn't come back to normal. And in that setting, if you were exposed to group A strep or some other infection, the potential consequences are more severe. So the way to avoid post-COVID symptoms is just to not get COVID. And the best way to do that is to get vaccinated. Right. And, and have you noticed, uh, do we have a better understanding now of what kind of impact that time may have had? I mean, you've mentioned those who are sort of continuing to suffer from, uh, from, from the effects of COVID. But has it had sort of a, a and this is going to sound very unscientific, but has it had sort of a, a detrimental impact on immune systems sort of broadly when it comes to these sorts of, these sorts of, uh, of bacteria, for instance? No, absolutely. We know that, that the immune system doesn't return to normal. It doesn't bounce back. And probably part of this is that it's turned on as a result of the COVID infection. And in, in many cases, it just doesn't turn off completely. So it's fighting in, in some way a virus that is no longer there. So that depletes the ability of the immune system to respond to other things. And that's probably some of what we're seeing out there right now. On the strep side, just to finish off, I, I guess we're in that season right now. That season will come to an end, I suppose, in the not-too-distant future as things begin to, to warm up. Well, strep throat is seasonal. Strep skin infections isn't. Influenza, COVID, RSV, and, and, and things like that, maybe meningovirus, those are seasonal. And what makes the strep part more severe, if it's a respiratory infection that happens at the same time or just after another infection, that increases the severity of it. So as... The other infections die off. The likelihood of having severe group A strep infections will be reduced. But, but um, we really still need to, to sort of pay attention to the, the possibility that a severe group A strep infection may occur. Right. And in this case, as you mentioned uh, off the bat, uh, just as a reminder to listeners, if you have something like strep throat and it tends to get, it's getting much worse quickly, then, then go see somebody about it. So again, the things that you worry about is if the illness is progressing very quickly, that's a bit unusual and it probably would merit a visit to the emergency room. If you have any kind of an infection, you're achy, you have a fever, you take a couple of Tylenol, acetaminophen, generally speaking, the fever will go down. If it doesn't go down, 
then that's another warning sign. If you're getting more short of breath, if you're getting lethargic, if you have children that uh, all of a sudden they want to take a nap and you can't wake them up from their from their nap, they might even be a little bit confused. They don't want to eat. All of those things in the context of, let's say, having a sore throat would be, to me, a sign of, of potential danger and would merit a visit to the emergency room. Look, the system is overwhelmed. There's no doubt about that. And mm. We're sort of telling people not to go to the emergency room unless they really need to. But, but you know, if any of the things that I just mentioned are occurring, then you really need to go to the emergency room, irrespective of what the system may be telling you it can bear. Yeah, if it's an emergency, it's an emergency. Dr. Conway, I know you just got back off a plane, so thank you so much for taking the time tonight. I appreciate it. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. That was noise from, or that was sound, I should say, from the southern province of Hate, a march there today, to mark the one-year anniversary of that catastrophic earthquake that struck uh, 11 Turkish provinces as well as uh, Syria on uh, this day last year. Um, you may remember the images of it. It was absolutely devastating. I mean, first of all, it hit right in the middle of the night, right? So people were at home. Um, a 7.8 magnitude quake. There was also uh, an aftershock that was close at about 7.5. So two very strong uh, shakes for that part of the world. Tens of thousands of people died, 59,000 people in total to be exact, 53,000 in Turkey, another 6,000 in Syria. Uh, again, there was a moment of a silence held there today at 4.17 a.m. to mark the time the quake hit. In Turkey, it's been called the disaster of the century. It really was an absolutely devastating earthquake. Uh, as I mentioned before, uh, we went to uh, went to the commercial break. Uh, they think there is more rubble created by that quake than in any other natural disaster, in any other quake ever. Now, I don't know how you measure that, but it's been just a, a monumental task to try to clear away what was destroyed to try and rebuild. Um, the worst struck province was Hate, where you just heard those people protesting. Uh, that's between the Mediterranean and the Syrian border. Um, of the 11 provinces hit, that was the worst one. And as I mentioned, another quake uh, came hours later, 7.5 magnitude one, just to just to make everything much worse. Uh, it lasted only for a little while, but a year on, it's clear the, the impact is going to be felt for many, many, many more years to come. According to the official figures, 14 million people in the country, in Turkey at least, were impacted uh, by the earthquake. More than 850,000 housing units, 850,000 Housing units were destroyed or badly damaged. And while most of the rubble has been cleared away, most rebuilding is slow. Um, the president, uh, Tayyip, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, today uh, actually held a draw for chances to own newly built homes in uh, one city in the, in, the cakes, uh, in the quake's epicenter, rather, called Karamanaris, if I get that right, uh, after he inspected the work being done there. But thousands and thousands of people remain in tents and prefabricated containers. Jesse Thompson is the International Federation of Red Cross and Red Crescent Society's um, representative in Turkey, and she joins me now from the capital, Ankara. Uh, Jesse, thank you so much for your time tonight. Thanks for having me. I, I mean, it goes without saying, it's a somber, somber anniversary there. What's the mood been like in the lead up to it and today? Uh, I think it has, it's been a, a, a hard time for many. Um, We've had a few small earthquakes in the last couple of weeks, and I think for many that was a bit of a scary reminder of a very, very upsetting time. And so there's lots of people who are grieving still, the loss of loved ones who are 
remembering that day as first responders, as people who were affected, um, or as people who had loved ones somewhere in the country and who were worried about finding news of their loved ones. So it's, it's, it's a, yeah, it's a sad time and a time of reflection for sure for many of my colleagues and, and my partners at the Turkish Red Crescent. Right. Perhaps a reminder for listeners, because I think sometimes with all that's happened in the past year, sometimes memories fade a little bit. But this was, I mean, the death toll in of itself says so much. I mean, 55,000 plus lives is absolutely devastating. But it was a devastating earthquake for the region. It was. It was really one of the biggest earthquakes in modern history, uh, affected both uh, Turkey as well as Syria. And in in Turkey, it, it affected 11 provinces, and just the scale of the destruction was was enormous. Um, I was I was at a presentation recently where they were talking about the rubble removal, uh, and they said it's the most rubble that has been produced by an earthquake in modern history, just because of the scale of the disaster, but also um, the moment that we're in in terms of uh, a developed country with many high rises and many people living in uh, in concentrated ways. And so the, the devastation and the destruction was really, really enormous. Yeah, I, I remember looking at it uh, at the time, looking at the images coming from, from, from the earthquake zone and thinking that could be any developed city where you have a sort of density of high-rise buildings and so on. And just the... The difficulty would be to try to to not only recover from that, but just to, to clear it away and try to rebuild afterwards. No, it's massive. It's a huge undertaking. You know, when you go into the affected area, you, you still have piles of rubble on the outskirts of cities where the clearing crews have moved the rubble out of the city center and into these big lots uh, outside of cities because they have to put it somewhere, starting to separate the rebar from the concrete in order to recycle some of the, some of the debris. But it's... Uh, it is really a, a huge undertaking, um, and I, and as you say, it is this. Uh, you know, it could be a neighborhood just like any neighborhood you and I know. And when I was in the affected area in February of last year, one of the things that really struck me was that it was just still so. There were so many signs of life interrupted. You know, you had toys and kitchen items like strewn amongst the rubble. You know, life had been ongoing. You know, shops that had been destroyed, but you still had, you know, the display of the fruit out front that was waiting for customers to arrive or, you know, curtains blowing in the wind in where no longer there were windows, but where, where someone lived, you know, just, just a few weeks before. And in a matter of minutes, people really lost everything. Yeah. Anytime I've been in, in areas, not, not like that, but areas similar, it always feels like someone pressed pause on a disaster film, unfortunately, but it's all, it's all too real. I understand, of course, that there were a lot of people who'd fled the conflict in Syria, living in those parts of Turkey when Turkey, when this hit. And of course, the, the situation in Syria is even more at this point, I gather, critical. Exactly. Um, Turkey hosts 4 million Syrian refugees and has hosted those refugees for over a decade and uh, half of the refugee population living in Turkey were in the earthquake affected areas. So it had a tremendous impact, not just on, on uh, Turkish people, but also on refugees who lived in the same neighborhoods in the same areas. And, and many of those folks had only just begun to recover their lives and restart their lives in Turkey. And now they're having to start all over again. Um, and as you say, uh, the, the devastation in Syria was layered on top of conflict and uh, and that and displacement, and so 
the recovery there has uh, has been a whole different context, and and the needs there are absolutely massive. Maybe a bit about the the past year. Then, how much progress has been made on on either side of that border? I I, I think people would understand that on the Syrian side, it's been slow and maybe uh, very very slow. But at least in Turkey, it seems like things are progressing. But it looks like there are still a lot of challenges there as well. Absolutely, um, I think that the response and uh, and the early days of the response, as well as that early recovery in Turkey, has been really incredible to bear witness to in terms of all that has actually been done and, and the progress that has been made. The IFRC works in partnership with the Turkish Red Crescent and the Turkish Red Crescent has served 10.5 million people. It's just a scale that is absolutely massive. Um, they were responsible for delivering hot meals to affected people who are displaced uh, as part of the National Disaster Management Plan and they delivered 425 million meals uh, over about a 10 month period. And that was three meals a day uh, for many people who had no means to cook for themselves and no food for themselves. So it's just the scale has been absolutely massive. And I think we can be really proud of of all that has been done to to alleviate the suffering of so many people. And I think the challenge now is, of course, we need to get into the recovery phase. We need to help people rebuild their livelihoods, help them get back to some normalcy. And that's really the challenge that lies ahead. And as we enter into the second year, the funding is much more limited. The interest is is really waning. And uh, that's where we really, uh, we really find it more challenging. The Canadian, the Canadian public has been extremely generous in support of the Canadian Red Cross. And we, uh, we work in partnership with the Canadian Red Cross and the Turkish Red Crescent. And that solidarity has been really inspiring, um, in spite of all the challenges that we face as well. Yeah, tell me a bit about that because I know there was uh, obviously the, their diasporas, right? But but all, there was a lot of attention paid to that disaster uh, in Canada itself, and I gather the Red Cross had done uh, a fairly had been up, out front with trying to get people to watch and to care and to donate. And the Canadians uh, were extremely generous. The Canadian government was supportive of the response and supported both the IFRC and the Turkish Red Crescent in our response. Um, and the Canadian public was extremely generous in their donations in response to the earthquake. And that has has saved lives. It's made people's lives just a little bit less difficult over the last year. And we can be really proud of that. Jesse Thompson is the International Federation of Red Cross and Red Crescent Society's head of delegation in Turkey. She's speaking to us tonight from the capital in Ankara. Uh, it is a it is a somber day in Turkey and in Syria today as they mark one year since that incredibly devastating or 7.8 magnitude quake struck um, several province, southern provinces of Turkey as well as across the border in Syria. 59,000 people were killed, many thousand more uh, injured. And the rebuild, of course, is slow going, as you would expect in a place that is as densely populated as that area of southern Turkey and a place so disrupted by civil war uh, as in Syria. Jesse, I guess that is part of the issue that that when people see those images of destruction and people suffering and need, they're quick to they're quick to donate. But as as conflicts enter their second years or not conflicts, but in this case, disaster relief enters its second year uh, and there are other things going on around the world. Sometimes eyes start to turn away and that can be a real challenge for groups such as yours who are still doing all this work on the ground. Absolutely. And that's that's really our our main message, you know, as we mark the one year that that this that our work is not done, uh, that there are still tremendous needs. And um, now is not the time to turn our attention away from Turkey, but it really actually to continue to show solidarity and support of the recovery effort. Um, we always said that it was a marathon, not a sprint. 
that that this disaster response was going to um, be years in the making. There's the early days of the response, the first phase of the response, and then there are the the months and years that follow in the recovery and reconstruction process. And uh, we're only halfway in the marathon. There's still a lot of work to be done, and and that's why we're trying to to raise as much awareness about the continued need as we can. A bit about what's happening in Syria, because, of course, at the time, I remember uh, when this first happened, there was questions about access for the IFRC and others. Um, has that improved? And, and what is the situation there now? Because I think I was reading your colleague, who is the head of mission um, for Syria, was saying that there's not even enough funding to think about going into sort of rehabilitation and reconstruction right now. No, exactly. It's extremely challenging. Um, the context in Syria is very different uh, than that of Turkey, and uh, and access has been a challenge, um, along with the sanctions, which also impact how aid is delivered. Um, but uh, but despite that, uh, the Syrian Arab Red Crescent, in partnership with the IFRC, has been really able to respond to those affected, providing first aid, ambulance services, mental health support, clean water, cash assistance, and that work has all been ongoing and continues. And I think the big difference probably for between the two contexts is just that recovery process and getting away from just life-saving interventions in support of emergency needs is more challenging in Syria where um, where there is that continued, continued uh, very complex context. But we do know that uh, you know, many in Syria also are, also are in need of, of support to rebuild their businesses, to restart farming, and all of those same needs exist in Syria as they do in Turkey as well. When you look ahead to year two, uh, what are some of, what, what would you like to accomplish and what are some of the barriers in the way? I guess funding, as you've mentioned, would be one of the primary ones, clearly. Uh, yeah, I think funding obviously is a big challenge. Um, the other challenge is that the re reconstruction process will take time. Uh, is an enormous amount of ho housing infrastructure that needs to be rebuilt, as well as basic infrastructure like water and sanitation. And it's not just as simple as removing the rubble and bricks and mortar. There are questions of where do you rebuild? Uh, do you rebuild in the same places or in other places that might be on more stable ground in terms of disaster risk reduction for future emergencies? Because this is a fault line. We know that that there will still be earthquakes. It's not that you get one earthquake and then there's never another earthquake again. Um, and of course, once you start talking about rebuilding elsewhere, then there are housing, land and property rights, all sorts of complexities to the reconstruction process um, that make it take time, inevitably, even with uh, the best plans and, and all of the right actors in place and all the funding in place. So we really need to be able to support communities, particularly those that are in temporary accommodation in, in container cities or in informal settlements in tents in in rural areas, we really need to help to make uh, life uh, just a little bit better and a little bit more bearable pending that uh, more large scale reconstruction. And that's everything from making sure that containers are weatherproofed so they don't leak in winter or so that they're warm enough in winter or so that they're OK in the summer when it gets hot again, um, making sure that families uh, have access to livelihoods to be able to, to support their own family's needs, and also continuing to pro provide mental health supports, psychosocial support, because we know there's quite a lot of trauma that, that uh, remains from the earthquake itself, but also from a year of displacement and disruption. So there's still a lot of work to be done. And um, 
as that reconstruction is ongoing, we need to accompany people uh, and and many many families that that continue to need assistance. Yeah, I remember obviously back uh, when the when the quake hit, there were lots of questions about the quality of construction and so on, given where it is and given the fault line. And there was certainly a focus on making sure that uh, anything that was rebuilt would be rebuilt better than that uh, than was in the past. How many people are we talking about when it comes to sort of informal settlements, container cities, kids not in school? I mean, is it are we still talking millions of people that are that are kind of out of home and unsettled at this point? They're, they're, the numbers are changing daily because solutions are found for families on a daily basis. And that's sort of the amazing thing about the pace of this recovery. But more than 435,000 uh, people are sleeping in temporary accommodation still. Um, right. still. Uh, and we know that there are many others in informal settlements, as well as many uh, who went and lived with loved ones or went and stayed with a relative. And so we're really talking about hundreds of thousands of people who are still without a, a return to normalcy and really, really uh, in a humanitarian situation. Well, Jesse, uh, I thank you for your time. Thanks for having me and thanks for helping us to raise awareness about the continued needs on the ground. 